Howdy. Good morning, church. It is so good to be with you today. Um, I uh, always like to take this Sunday to say, and you won't know what I'm, some of you will, but the, a lot of you won't know what I mean for a second. I always like to say on this Sunday, Happy New Year. Whether you recognize it or not, it actually is, because for about 1,600 years, followers of Jesus have a rhythm and marked the rhythm of their life, not by whatever the government said was the calendar, but by the life of Jesus. And this is the first Sunday of the new year in a Christian rhythm of doing things, because they follow the life of Jesus. And so the opening season of the Christian calendar is this season known as Advent just the Latin word for arrival or coming or showing up. And so it is the season that, again, for 1,600 years, followers of Jesus have recognized the weeks leading up to Christmas is a great time to say, we want to prepare our hearts to worship a God who shows up in the world. Both in celebration of the first Advent, when Jesus came as a baby, but also anticipating the final Advent when Jesus comes back and fixes all of this mess. And in the middle, we are preparing our hearts to be worshiping the God who doesn't just show up in those two times, but shows up in our lives all the time. That's what we do in these seasons. Uh, This church celebrated and recognized Advent before I came here, and so I enjoyed stepping into that. One of the things that I thought might be fun to add was something uh, churches have done for a long time, is they have a visual representation of that in this little thing we call an Advent wreath. Uh, The wreath symbolizes what it always does. It's the circle of God's love. It doesn't begin, doesn't end. Um, But the picture of what the Advent season is about, we celebrate in the birth of Jesus that the light of God has come into the darkness of the world. And so you build up to that by having a different candle lit each week. Most of them are purple, which is the color of repentance or preparation, preparing our hearts You'll notice the third week is a turn towards more of a joy and hopefulness. That's what the pink is about. And then, of course, at the center is the white, pure candle of the presence of Jesus, which we light on Christmas Eve. So it's a simple little symbol, but I think it's kind of fun. Uh, By the way, Monty, if you're in here, don't blow it out, because I've asked a child to blow out the candle after. So in first service, Aria, it was her birthday. It would have been really cool if she blew out the candle, but then Monty did it. So thanks, man. I know, man. (laughs) I appreciate it, man. I love you. That was a communication problem on my part, not on yours. So um, I think I said something to Stephen. Actually, I, I'm asking um, Riley, who uh, was baptized a while back. So after service, she's going to come and, um, with some supervision, probably, blow out the candle. So as we do this each week, I think it's a beautiful moment just to think about. So you'll see the symbolism is, is darkness gets captured by the light. I want you to think about this. As I light it each time, here's would take a few seconds, even in silence, to say, is there some place in your life or in the world where you'd love to see God show up? Some place in your life or in the world, you want more light to be there. And as I'm lighting it, let it be a prayer. And I'll give you a moment of silence as well as we think about that and offer that to God. Take a moment just to to ask God in quiet, any place in your life or in the world you would like to see more of God's light. Father God, we do thank you for simple symbols like this and, and for the rhythm of your son's life 
that we get to step into at certain times just to remind ourselves that these aren't just stories we read. Jesus modeled the life to live, and we want to, to do that not just in some formal ways, but in every day of our lives. We want to surrender to the rhythm of your life in ours. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We're going to do the reading here. All of our passages for this Advent season will come out of the book of Isaiah. And this is one of the times of the year where I like to step into into the reading that the church has given. Again, for centuries, these passages are one of the passages that are read in some churches. Some churches are pretty fixed in the the passages they read. We have the, the freedom to pick and choose what we want to do. But there's a couple times a year where I want to step into that. And I think it's really cool to think about this. The passage I'm about to read... is being read all around the world by thousands and thousands of Christians in many different languages. It's kind of neat, isn't it? So when we worship today, we worship together with the people of God throughout the world. So would you please stand out of respect for God? A little symbol that we do just to say thank you for a God that speaks to us. We're going to read from Isaiah chapter 64, the first nine verses, these verses of expectation and preparation for the God who comes and shows up. And you see the words on the screen that we, uh, we say at the end. This is the word of the Lord, Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down, and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you, who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like a wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us. You have given us over to our sins. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Pray with me, please. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As we begin this Advent season, I want to invite you with me to kind of recall some of your more comical prayers. You have silly prayers, funny prayers when you look back, when, when you prayed them before they were probably real and they meant something. Later on, you look back and say, well, that was kind of silly. I was thinking about this and I was drawn back to, I think it was either my freshman or my sophomore year of college. And I remember this particular moment really well. I was I was walking to class, an 8 o'clock class, it's painful for me, but I was walking there and it was, I remember a crisp fall day, the, the sky was so blue you could drink it, you know, days like that. I was walking across the drill field, I, 
we were at Virginia Tech, and they had this huge place where the ROTC would practice and do their drills and all that huge, uh, huge area. And, and I remember exactly where I was standing when I prayed this prayer. And I was walking across, and I, I looked over to my right, and there was the chapel there. A chapel I didn't know at that time that a few years later I would marry the love of my life in that place. But I wasn't thinking those warm, happy thoughts at that moment. All I was thinking about is that I had a philosophy exam and I wasn't ready for it. I was terrified. I knew the stuff I didn't know as a recovering perfectionist. I knew I didn't know it. I'd put things off. It was all on me. And I kid you not, I remember the prayer I prayed. I remember looking up at the sky and saying, God, if any day that Jesus would come back, this would be a great day for Jesus to come back right now. I'd literally think, wouldn't it be great he came back? I don't have to worry about my test. I think, of course, that's an absurd prayer. Like, God's going to change the eternal timeline of the world because I didn't study. We've all had silly prayers, right? But what do we do in those moments and those times in our lives when the prayers are not funny? They're serious. They're dire. And the circumstances that we're bringing to God are weighing us down deeply. What do we do in times like that? I think in this season, it's always a season where we think about what what are our prayers about? We pray about our families, don't we? Often we're praying into situations for our families. I, I think about those who have kids or you have brothers and sisters. And do you ever think about this sometimes? You know, the most important decision that you'll ever make in your life is who gets in the center of the circle of your influence. Do you ever pray about that? Do you ever see whether it's a, a child or a grandchild or a brother or a sister and you realize there's somebody in the center of that circle that shouldn't be there? It's not that they're evil, but they're, they're taking them in directions that they shouldn't go. Have you ever prayed those kind of prayers? Who's going to be the influence in the life of that person I care about? We pray for families in this time. Boy, this is true in the world, but it's true everywhere. Pray for marriages. You know this. Marriages are consistently under attack And that's true in this church too. I know in a room of this size, some of you are fighting for the life of your marriage. And we're with you. We love you on that. And do you feel those prayers going up? Those prayers, that's not a comical prayer. That's a prayer of desperation, is it not? Or I think about those people that are are praying for those whose health is on the line, whether it's physical health or it's spiritual health. And you don't know what's coming next. And we're, we're throwing those prayers up. For some people, the prayers that they're crying out for in that moment, in that desperate moment, is because there's some wound in their life from the past or from the present, and it's just not healing right now. Or I even think about this. A friend of mine was reminding this. Just think about this season right now. And I know it's joyful and it's fun and it's exciting, but you know this is a hard time of year for some people. And it may be for some of you. I got a good friend of mine some, some years ago. I haven't talked to him in a little while, but about two weeks before Thanksgiving every year, he would start getting grumpy. <laughs> and all the time he said, I hate the holiday. I hate the holiday. I thought he's, man, he's just a Grinch. And then I got to know a little bit more about him, and it turns out he's, he's got a family that's just absolutely a mess. And he cannot stand those forced times where you got to go home for the holidays because you're supposed to do it. But he's about to step in to the absolute train wreck of a family situation, and it's so difficult for him. He just wants to get through it. That's the way life is sometimes right now. Do you feel that? What about those kind of prayers? And I come to this season, I come to this text, and I say, is there a word from God 
for these kind of times in our lives when the prayers are not funny and they're not casual, they're desperate and they're dire. Is there a word from the Lord? And that's exactly what the season of Advent is all about. We worship a God who hears, who responds, and who shows up. When we come into this passage, part of what we hear and what we learn is how to pray and orient our hearts in preparation for a God who shows up. And the first verse here has one of my favorite lines of prayer in all the Bible. Here's a way to think about it. Basically, what they're praying and saying to God is what we will say to kids when they get their Christmas presents. Have you ever given a present to a child and they're like methodically opening it up? Have you ever given a gift to somebody they're like methodically opening up? If they're doing it, what do you say? You don't methodically do it. What do you do? Tear it open. <laughs> That's the prayer in verse 1. Did you catch this? That's literally the prayer. It's one of my favorite prayers in the Bible. Here's, here's verse 1. It says, Lord, would you rend the heavens and come down. Isn't that great? They're feeling the distance between what they're seeing in the world and the God who is up there somewhere. We know that's not literal, but they, they feel, would you just tear open the sky and show up in this broken place? Have you prayed that prayer before? It's a desperate prayer in this moment. In verse 1, they're crying out for God to show up in this way. It reminds me what parents will say to children sometimes, young children, or often owners. Have you ever said this? You got a dog? Have you ever said this to your dog? And you point at it like the dog can talk to you, and you point at the dog and you say, do you see the mess you made? <laughs> Have you ever done that? Do you see that mess? That's what they're saying to God. Do you see the mess in this world? See, it starts in verse 1 with tear open the sky and show up. Come from there to here and do something. That's the beginning of it. The end in verse 9 literally says this. There, I want to translate it literally so you see two words of looking and not one. It says in verse 9, Behold and look. Behold, O Lord, look. Please look. Like God, pay attention to what's going on here. Do you see, God, the mess that is made in this world all around us? Then it gets really honest. I love the honesty of this prayer. These are the hearts of people who know what it's like to prepare for an advent. Because what do they say in verse 3? Do you notice this? Every verb in verse 3 is in the past tense. I want you to feel what they're feeling, how honest they are. They know God is a mighty God, but listen to what they say in verse 3. When you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Do you hear that? Like, we know, God, you're really powerful, and you did cool stuff we didn't expect before. You came down before. You shook up the world before. There's important imagery here. They're calling for God to shake things up because they've literally been held captive by a pagan, oppressive, foreign power. And they're saying, would you come shake this stuff up? We know you did it in the past, but they're not seeing it now. Have you had times like that in your life before where God shows up powerfully, but it feels like it's in the past tense? One of the things I love about this season of Advent is it reminds us again, it's okay to doubt. It's okay to struggle. And it's okay to give tear open the sky prayers to our God. It's okay to have those moments. Have you had these before? Where you're almost afraid to hope. Have you had times like that? You're almost afraid to believe that God's going to do something big and actually show up in your life because you don't want to set yourself up again to be disappointed. Have you been there before? 
I think about 1 Kings chapter 4. Go skim through that sometime. There's a story of a woman there who is a widow. She's already lost her husband. She's never been able to have children. So she's all alone in her family. Even more in that society, she doesn't have the means to take care of herself. And the prophet of God, a man named Elisha, shows up in her life and is led by the Lord to speak a word of hope to her, an impossible word of hope. Elisha comes up and says, you know, by the time next year I come and see you, you're going to have a son. Go read the story because it is this kind of a prayer moment. You know what she says to him? Don't get my hopes up. Don't say that to me. Have you ever been in a spot where you're like, I am learned to be kind of content with being discontent. And I don't want to trust anything bigger for my life because I'm afraid I'm going to be disappointed. That's literally what she says in the passage. But sure enough, the Lord delivers on his promise and she has a son. And then guess what? The son dies. Uh, How much would you like to have that conversation when Elisha shows up again to talk to the mother? Because she says to him, I told you, don't get my hopes up. Now, spoiler alert, the Lord uses Elisha to bring him back to life. But I want you to think about that in-between time. That's this kind of a prayer. God, we've heard you've done powerful things in the past, but we're afraid to believe in you doing it right now. It is okay to bring your doubts and your struggles and your fears to God. Because the Lord says, it's all right to use this as a season to say, whatever it is that I see where I want the light of God to more powerfully show up in my life, God says, it's okay as part of our season. You don't have to rush to the joyful, happy. You can start by saying, God, I need to pray some tear open the sky prayers. Now, that's part of this season. Isn't that great? Now, in addition to that, before there's hope, powerful hope in the text. But before we rush to the hope, again, the honesty of these Advent kind of prayers that they're giving to God is that they recognize that the tear open the sky kind of prayer about all the mess in the world is only part of the problem. Then they said, here's, here's the real deal. We're part of the problem too. We as people, it's not just that the world is a wreck and the world is a disaster. We are recognizing to you, Lord, that we have added fuel to that fire. It's not just that there's a pagan oppressive army out there doing crazy stuff. We have rebelled also. I want you to see what a picture of preparing your heart for a God who shows up looks like in our passage. What do they say? Verse 5. You come to the help of those who gladly do right and remember your ways. And again, by the way, verse 5 is translated a bunch of different ways because the text is hard to get at. But basically, here's the big picture. We continue to sin against your ways. You were angry. How then can we be saved? Do you feel this? We kept on sinning. So it's not like just there's stuff going on out there. You kept calling to us, and we kept running away from you. And now we're at that spot. Have you ever been this place? Well, I don't know if he's going to hear me anymore. Now, hear me, you're in Christ, so you don't have to worry about that. We, we dealt with that guilt so much, but I do think it's important to say part of our preparation for the season is owning those places in our hearts and our lives where we've been running from God. And that's part of what they do. They're honest to say, it's not just the problems out there. The problem is right in here and in here that we own our brokenness. And I think it's really beautiful that the church for 1,600 years has said we've got a couple times a year where we very actively think about, we'll recall to our minds places where we've run from God. That's part of our preparation. Own the places where we've added fuel to the fire. I was thinking through places in Scripture, maybe one way to do this. Let me just talk about 
couple different instances in Scripture that are other examples of people praying these kinds of prayers and see if one or another might resonate with you or somebody in your life. Obviously, the first one and the main one they're talking about is sin. We all sin. We all rebel against God. We all go our way when God is going that way, and we think that we know better. And that's part of what we own. I think about the story of Saul. In 2 Samuel 24, I believe it is, where Saul, he was the first king of Israel. God appointed him to be king of Israel. And then very quickly, Saul showed that he was not the man for the job. His heart was going in a different direction than God. God wasn't giving up on him as a human being, but God says, you're not going to be the king that, I, that I've intended for this place. I really think what's going on is he let them have what they wanted, a king like other nations had. He gave him a king that looked like what kings were supposed to look like. But then God says, I'm going to pick my guy. And he's a guy named David. And then there's a story in 2 Samuel 24 where even though Saul knows that David's going to be king, he tries to kill David. Saul is greedily grasping and trying to hold on to a position that God himself has told him is not yours to have anymore. And he does it for years, running away from the Lord. And there's this moment in 2 Samuel 24 that I, I call it a tragically honest moment. Where he says to David, I want to read this here. Maybe, maybe there are places and times in our lives we've been like this. This is what he says to David. Because David refrains from killing him when he could have. And he said, you, David, are more righteous than I. You have treated me well, but I've treated you badly. That's the understatement of the year, by the way. He tries to kill him. But look at verse 20. Tragically honest moment. He said, I know that you will surely be king. And he goes tries to kill him. Have you ever been in those places where you feel like overwhelmed? That's what, that's what Israel is saying. We are overwhelmed by our rebellion and our sin. We're, the water's over our heads on this. Saul is running away from God so consistently, even though he knows David is God's will, he still won't submit to it. Part of what the season's about is owning that. Hey, this is where I am. By the way, Lest we think that there is any superhero in the Bible other than God, David himself has to pray a prayer like that too, right? In Psalm 51, listen to this language. This is a prayer of an advent, preparing for God to come up in his life. This is what he says. Sin is always, my sin is always before me. And he goes on to say, surely I was sinful at birth. And then all of a sudden theologians debate about whether original sin comes out of this passage. He's a poet. He's speaking out of his heart. He's not trying to talk theology here. He's saying, I feel so sinful. It was like I was sinning from birth. He wasn't stealing cars when he was born. He was like saying, I'm overwhelmed by this. Have you ever been in a moment like that? Well, maybe it's not sin that has you under the water. Maybe it's more kind of an inadequacy that we bring to the moment that leads us into places that God doesn't intend us to be. I think about the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. And Jesus has this honest conversation with her. He says, go call your husband and come back. She says, I have no husband. He said, that's right. You've had five before, and the one you're with now is not your husband. He is not giving you even the dignity of, of, of marrying you in this moment. And he's not shaming her. She's not like this terrible, evil person. What he's pointing out to her is that she's been trying to fill up the emptiness, as we've said before, in her life in the arms of another man. And that will never work, Jesus says. And her own inadequacy that she's bringing to these times is what is opening herself up to the disaster that she's pouring onto the fire. Does that make sense? And part of the Advent experience for her in her life was to own that, and then Jesus is able to show up more powerfully. Isn't that interesting? A last example I'll give. 
Sometimes it's the circumstances of our lives that expose what we're bringing to the situation or not. Circumstances around us we can't control, but what we do and how we show up, we can. In Mark chapter 4, people often talk about the prayer at the end of the story, but we don't talk about the story. There was a father who had a son who was possessed by the enemy. He was possessed by a demon. And that demon forced him to harm himself. Now, it's not demons that do this all the time, but that still happens today. We still have people that harm themselves physically or in other ways because they've allowed the enemy to tell them who they are. And can you imagine the desperation of a father who's crying out to Jesus? He comes to Jesus because he says your disciples couldn't heal him. And Jesus has a conversation that leads him to hope, and he says everything is possible for the person who believes. And now, maybe you've heard this prayer before. You want to hear a great Advent prayer that's honest and real? This is what the Father said. I believe, what else did he say? Help my unbelief. Part of what we can do in an Advent season is to own the fact that, God, I believe you, and sometimes I don't. <laughs> and I'm just going to give that to you. Sometimes I, I, I give the Father, the place, the, the candle that isn't lit is a sin in my life. Sometimes it's my inadequacy. Sometimes it's just I want to trust you more and I'm just not there yet. And all of this season gives us the opportunity to offer to the Lord whatever needs to be lit up in the places of our life. Isn't that great? By the way, quickly, it's not just individually, by the way. This passage isn't about individual struggles and rebellion and sin. The entire people of God had run away from God. And sometimes collectively, we look around and say, look, the world itself is out of control. And sometimes we, we are too. Great picture of this is a prayer. Again, I'm just giving you examples of, of Adventy kind of preparing our hearts prayers. This is a cor corporate collective prayer. We don't look at it very much. It's in the book of Lamentations. And it's in the season that Isaiah is writing about too, where after exile, or towards the end of exile, they've been taken into a foreign country by a pagan oppressive regime. And everything's been devastated. Imagine you have been, you know, your capital city's been burned down. All that stuff has happened. This is the opening words of the book of Lamentations. Are you ready for a great Advent prayer? How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she who once was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Bitterly, she weeps at night, and tears are on her cheeks. You ever get overwhelmed sometimes with what a mess it is all around? That's part of what we do in Advent. We say, all right, God, here it is. Do you see this? By the way, last thing to see in all of this honest part of it, the worst part of it, verse 7, it says, because of our sins, we can't see you anymore. Our sins have hidden the face of God from us. Two chapters before he makes it clear. It's not like God's trying not to listen. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 is really important. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that you will not hear. God is already, always ready to save, always ready to listen. Problem is, if I'm continuing in my rebellion, I literally can't hear him sometimes. And that's what Advent is all about. I'm going to own it. So I can hear you and see you. And that's the problem. The Lord's been hidden from them in some way. So I say this. The most important part of our preparation for a God who shows up in our lives and in the world is knowing that we need God to show up in our lives in the world. Do you see that? <laughs> the most important Advent thing we do. The most important thing we do to prepare ourselves for a God who shows up 
in our lives and in the world is know that we need God to show up in our lives and in this broken world. And that's our prayer. God, do you see all this out there and in here? Would you please advent again? Would you show up? And then we come to the end of the text with these glorious pictures of hope. Incredible pictures. He gives a couple images here, but really chapters 40 through the end of the book of Isaiah is just image after image of hope. One after another. There's a couple of them here. The picture of the hope of God coming into the world. But my favorite, one of my favorite words in all the Bible is right here in verse 8. Picture it this way. So the world's a mess. My life is a mess. Our community's a mess. All of that stuff. And then what's my favorite word in verse, verse 8? Yet... Yet you, O Lord. We talk about this similar to what Paul does in the book of Ephesians. In chapter 2 when he says, You were dead in your sins, but God who is rich in mercy. It changes everything. Oh, we're a mess. Yet you, O Lord. Yet you, O Lord. We're owning all of the darkness here. Yet you, O Lord. I, uh, I, I like to study weird things at times just to kind of expand my appreciation of God's world. One of the things that I, I did recently is I, I, I had an online course that I did on writing short fiction. Don't worry, I'm not getting a new job. I'm not writing any books. But I love studying the art of story. I believe that our lives are actually in a narrative shape to them. Obviously, the scriptures are, and it's not fiction. It's drama in real life. But I think there's something about the telling of a story. And the teacher was talking about their and if you're writing the story, there are three great movements in the story. The first one, I love this, and you channel all your Star wars stuff in this. The first is the disturbance, right? So you have the setting and all that is set up. There's some disturbance that shakes some things up. Then it arises with the section of the conflict, right? So different forces, and he's basically saying the more conflict you can throw in there, the better. And then, of course, the last movement is the movement of resolution. But there's a really important moment that kicks off the resolution story. He calls it, I wrote it down, I want to make sure I get it right here. He calls it the lights out moment. And you know this, any good book, any good story, any good movie, they'll get to a place where the hero gets to a place where there is no visible hope. And there, there's some little seed that was planted at the beginning of the story that gets recaptured here and that turns everything around. That's what's going on in this story. And this is not fiction, it's real life. They built it up like, God, you promised you did great things. The world is terrible, it's a mess. Our lives are a mess. Yet, but God, it is that moment that things dramatically turn. What makes it possible to turn and to lean into our hope in a God who shows up? Two images he gives us here. Let's appreciate them both. First is the image of a father. You see this in verse 8. He said, but yet you Yahweh, personal name of God, are our Father. Whenever I talk about these images or on the actual day, we celebrate fathers. I always want to say this quickly. I understand some of you are here and that image is not the best image for you. And we grieve that with you. There are some people who have the biological title of father and are not being a father or haven't been to you. I grieve that with you. God's intent is to reclaim that for the one who is the father you were always supposed to have. By the way, usually there's somebody in our life that the Lord raises up that is a father kind of figure to us. So I want you to think about that image. 
But think how different this is. When they think everything is hopeless, it is entirely different to understand God is not just some distant God out there. The Lord is our Father. And God wants to stay tethered to our lives because He chose a relationship with us first. And that makes the prayer and our hope entirely different than if we were just leaning into our deserving of it, which we clearly said in the last movement we're not. I have a, uh, a, a discipleship coach in my life. He trains and helps me try to follow Jesus and, and share that with other people. We were talking this past week, and so it was beautiful how God brought this together with what I was studying here. He talked about a verse we've all heard before. The words that the Father speaks over Jesus when Jesus is baptized. But let me remind you of this. What God the Father said to Jesus the Son at his baptism, God the Father says to all of us when we give our lives to Jesus too. But I love that he brought this out in the message. So I'm going to read Matthew 3, verse 17 in the message. Hear this as God's hope for us. This is what he says to Jesus, then we'll personalize it. He said, this is my son, chosen and marked by my love, delight of my life. Not a great translation of that? This is my son, chosen and marked by my love, delight of my life. Now here was the challenge. My, my coach Greg said, now I want to challenge you to say that as a prayer and put your name in it. And see how he talked about it. He said, how does it feel to say that? If you're like me, I struggle to believe it. So picture it this way. This is my child, your name. Chosen and marked by my love, delight of my life. One of the guys in our group said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to commit to every day praying that. God, would you make that real? Because I struggle to believe it. Can you say right now, I deem am your son, chosen and marked by your love, the delight of your life. I struggle to believe that. But God says, I have chosen not just to be your God, but to be your father. And that is the hope that you have, no matter how catastrophic the disaster is out there or in here. God says, I am your father, and you are the delight of my life. Is that powerful? I invite you to pray into that, lean into that as part of your hope. The second image, I love this. We see this even more starkly in the book of Jeremiah. The second image comes in the second part of verse 8. Verse 8 says, we are the clay, and you are the potter. What a beautiful picture. Why is this a great image when we think about all the mess of the world and how we want God to show up, how is this a great image? Just look at the hands. Those are nasty, dirty, marred hands. And that's exactly what the Lord does. Rend the heavens and come down. Would you come into the mess? God says, you better believe it because you're the clay and I'm the potter. And God says, I don't mind getting my hands dirty in the messes of this world. Isn't that beautiful? And why is clay a great image of hope for us that look around at a world that is totally a mess and look inside our hearts that's totally a mess? Why is clay a great image? Because in the hands of a master potter, you can always do what? Start over. And that's what we pray for. God, would you come and take those hands and get it into our lives? Frankly, this is the whole prayer of Advent. God, would you look at this? Would you be our father? And would you be the potter that comes in and remakes it? Would you show up? I heard the testimony of a friend of mine. He's a 
He's a minister out in California. He just went out there to work with a brand new church plant, 30 people in California. And he was telling us the story of a guy, we'll call his name Ken. And Ken, I'm telling you, was lost and was far away from God, from the people of God, from anything like church for 30 years. When Jim got to know Ken, Ken was 70. When he was 40, he was working as an associate minister for a church. And he got burned by the mess of church, church politics and all that. He was associate minister there. New preacher came in. You got to worry about those crazy new preachers. New preacher came in, fired him because he wanted his guy. I mean, there's times, transition, whatever. That was, it was not, it was one of the, it was brutal. It was just get out, church politics, all that kind of stuff. Ken never went back to church. Ran from God, ran from church. Now listen, there's messes on both sides of that. The church, I hate it when the church acts like the world, and we do sometimes. There was politics, it was ugly. Also, it's appropriate for him to be angry and grieved. Bitterness and unforgiveness is probably not the way to go with hurt in our lives. And so he, he had some mess on his side of things, but he ran for 30 years. Little church of 30 people. Brand new church plant had the audacity to pray, an Advent kind of prayer. God, would you, would you actually tear open the sky and show up in a little church of 30 people and in a community right out here in California? Would you show up, actually? Would you do something? In fact, they had the audacity to pray that God would show up in things that we all know isn't supposed to work anymore. They decided to go door knocking. <laughs> I know, I get chilled. Like, I don't want to do that. But it was totally different. He said, I know, I know what you're thinking. He said, here's what we decided. Really short, really fast. We're not, he said, the first words out of my mouth was, we're not selling anything. We're not asking you to do anything. He said, one minute, two minutes tops. We're going to go to every door in the surrounding community and just introduce ourselves. Hi, I'm Jim, part of this new church plant. We just want to be good neighbors. Hi, that's it. Leave. And he trained his people to like not be annoying. Don't sell anything, do this. And so he's working, like the intern was working with him and apparently he didn't train him too well because he talked to the intern, yeah, one minute, just introduce yourself, get out. And he goes to Ken's door, knocks on the door, stays there, not one minute, not two minutes, but two hours. <laughs> Later on, Ken's wife told Jim, as soon as he closed the door, Ken walked back, looked at his wife and said, we're going to church on Sunday. And he went to church. And he experienced a community of people like this one, broken, imperfect, own that, but they're trying not just to have it a bumper sticker, but they're trying to be disciples who make disciples. And in the conversation, Jim invited him to be part of a disciple group for five guys, four guys getting together, meeting, praying, being real, trying to follow Jesus in practical ways. And Ken just lit up. He said he became my most passionate witness to diving into the life of Jesus. He was telling everybody about it. In fact, Ken's wife would tell Jim that he would come back. They, their meeting would end at like 7.30 on Tuesday night or something. He would come back and talk to her about all the stuff that he learned about Jesus until midnight. <laughs> like, I know we love Jesus, but some of you wives would be like, okay, you can tell me more tomorrow. But, I mean, he was just going off on it. November 12th, a couple weeks ago laid down in the bed, and he died. He didn't tell Jim. I'm sure he told his wife. He didn't tell Jim. He didn't tell a lot of people's life. He knew he wasn't going to live much longer. And, I, you know, not the way I would do it, but he didn't tell anybody that. But I wrote down the words that Jim said. It was so powerful to me. Jim said, we had the privilege in one year's time to grow together and to grow closer to Jesus in such a way to where we got to usher Ken into the arms of Jesus. 
How did that happen? My friends, God showed up. And he showed up as a father that never gives up on anybody, even if you've run from him for 30 years. And he showed up as a potter that can actually remake the ugliness of church gone wrong and showed him a picture of the way it was supposed to be. He actually showed up to a little church of 30 people who didn't know whether or not they could make a difference in the world and that God would show up through them, and he did. That's exactly what we're doing this Advent season. We're, We're preparing our hearts for God's arrival again, to say, would you come again? And we want to offer our lives to be remade ourselves, but also be used by your Spirit to remake other people as well. Father God, that's our prayer. As we come together here, we, we literally offer ourselves as the unlit candles. To say, would you reignite us again? Would you bring your light into all the, the dark places, the the hard places, the places we need to most grow closer to you, not just with us individually, us collectively, and in the world around us. Father, we believe, help our unbelief, that you continue to be a God who shows up in a broken world. Do that in us and through us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you have your... uh...